0: Welcome to the Lenten series podcast of Christ Church at Grove Farm. We are thrilled to be able to join you in this season of reflection and repentance as we make our way to the commemoration of the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are joined in this season by some of Pittsburgh's most well-known and influential pastors who will be leading us on one of the Psalms each week. You can find more messages like this to aid in your Lenten and faith experience on our website, ccgf.org, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also keep up with Christ Church on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Here is this week's Lenten message. Grace and peace to you. Thank you, Jeremiah. And I want to say I'm delighted to be with you, honored to be with you, and want to thank Pastor Craig for inviting me. I'll confess when I first saw the title, Men of Steel, and then considered the respective ages of the participants, I found myself thinking perhaps men of arthritis, (laughs) men of Geritol, or Survivor Series would have been more appropriate. And then this afternoon I had an experience that made me wonder, maybe I'm too young to even be a part of this. My wife Karen and I were in Giant Eagle. Now, Karen's two years younger than me, but she's always looked about 10 years younger than her chronological age. We're walking down the aisle where the soft drinks are, our masks in place, and a woman older than either one of us stopped me, and she looked at my wife Karen and said, would you mind if I borrow your son for a moment? (laughs) I can't reach some of those boxes on the top shelf. Well, I I brought down the boxes for the dear lady, after which she looked past me and looked right at Karen and said, you did a good job raising this young man. (laughs) So so needless to say, I've been walking on air (laughs) ever since. Now, Karen, not so much. I bought her a can of beer so that she could make beer bread. I noticed as I left... The beer can was open, but none of the other ingredients were out. (laughs) During this Lenten season and this series, my geriatric colleagues have been unpacking the message of various psalms. This evening, I want to take a slightly different approach. Rather than unpacking the meaning of a single psalm, I'd like to set the stage for viewing a group of psalms, six specifically, from a fresh perspective by placing them in an entirely different context, specifically the context of Lent and an event that occurred just prior to Jesus' crucifixion. I also hope to encourage a deeper appreciation of a simple narrative statement in the Holy Week text that often goes undetected and undervalued. To accomplish that, I'm going to take what will seem like a rather strange route. I'm going to revisit a familiar narrative that at first glance appears to have nothing to do with the Lenten focus. It's found in the Old Testament book of Exodus. Jeremiah read it for you a moment ago. It records an event that unfolded shortly after the people of Israel had witnessed what should have been should have been. A doubt-defeating, game-changing miracle at the Red Sea. I'm going to reread the first two verses of the text because I want to place emphasis on two phrases for reasons that I'll unpack later. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians. The people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song. I've entitled this teaching, The Right Song, The Wrong Side. Would you join your hearts with mine in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, as is always the case... I am totally incapable of the assignment that has been given to me this evening, but you are capable. And so I ask for a fresh infilling from your Holy Spirit so that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And I pray these things with great confidence in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Have you ever felt trapped in a seemingly hopeless situation that appeared to contradict God's love for you and God's promises to you? I suspect most people who have been following Jesus for any length of time would answer that in the affirmative. Because while we all wish it were otherwise, we nonetheless recognize that life in a fallen creation often presents us with situations that severely challenge our faith. We also understand that we are involved in spiritual warfare with skilled, determined adversaries who seek our destruction. But what we may not fully grasp is there are times when those perplexing moments have been orchestrated by our best friend in the universe by God himself, and orchestrated for our welfare. And as today's story illustrates, when that's the case, our response in those moments will either increase our confidence in God or suffocate it. And our response will be influenced by how and what, and most importantly, when we choose to sing God's praises. So with that, let's look at the story. Just hours after watching God bring Egypt and its idols to their knees, just hours after stepping across the threshold of freedom, just hours after receiving an unanticipated financial windfall from plague-weary Egyptians, the people of Israel found themselves in a situation that appeared to spell their certain destruction. Before them lay the Red Sea. To the south, impassable mountains. To the north, an Egyptian garrison. And to the west, the rapidly approaching chariots of Pharaoh. They appeared to be sitting ducks. And that had to be a particularly bitter pill to swallow. Because for the first time in their lives... They had just recently allowed themselves to entertain hope and to dream. To dream of a better future. Now, it appeared that their dream was a nightmare. It appeared that their dream was a cruel hoax. Because they appeared to be ticketed for either mass genocide out in the desert or a forced return to Egypt and dehumanizing slavery. Now, given those circumstances, it did not take long before a tsunami of panic and despair engulfed those people. And I suspect that their despair was particularly jagged edged because hopelessness is most bitter and most deadly when it comes fast on the heels of hope. And Satan knows that. That's why some of his most severe attacks follow quickly on the heels of some encouraging spiritual breakthrough or spiritual progress. But what Satan repeatedly overlooks is the fact that God often uses the stubbornness of evil for our gain and for evil's loss. And that's what he was about to do. At the Red Sea. He was going to use that sudden contrast between their dreams of freedom and the approaching chariots to teach them something. And so he orchestrated the whole event. Back in Egypt, God had further hardened the already stubborn and self-hardened heart of Pharaoh, leading him to reverse his earlier decision to release his former slaves. And as incredible as it would have sounded in that moment, God did that with Pharaoh for Israel's benefit. Because God knew that while they were liberated, they weren't fully ready for total freedom and the next assignment and the next chapter in their life. And he knew they wouldn't be ready until they recognized that we can't move forward with God until we're convinced we can't move forward at all on our own. God had made that clear to Moses at the burning bush. Now he was going to make it clear to Moses' people at the Red Sea. Because faith isn't self-improvement, it's God replacement. It doesn't remove our human limitations, it attaches them to an unlimited God. And God's people needed to recognize that. And that recognition wasn't going to come through nice words alone. It would require some God-sized experiences and some God-sized interventions, and God was about to offer them both. He orchestrated it to teach them that the new life God offers cannot be constructed on the foundation of our old life. Let me expand on that. Moses' people were only hours removed from generations of slavery. It was all they had ever known. And slavery is built on a foundation of demonic lies in the souls of its perpetrators, and it births demonic lies in the souls of its victims. And demonic lies are stubborn. They become strongholds, and they don't die overnight, and they don't die at all without sufficient evidence to the contrary. See, much of what Scripture refers to as growing in grace requires that we identify and then consciously reject the stubborn demonic lies that have set our agenda. Recognition always precedes repentance. And it's my conviction that we experience more opposition from Satan in the recognition phase than we even do in the repentance phase. And some lies aren't recognized until God allows us to be in a place where we have no hope apart from him. And that's why momentary despair and confusion are often early indicators of God at work. We tend to look at them as indicators that God's forgotten us. Or that we've somehow grieved God and he's distanced himself from us. But instead, they're often indicators of God at work. Despair over our weakness drives us back upon his strength. Confusion drives us back upon his wisdom. Well, in their despair and confusion, Moses' countrymen overlooked an important fact. As they stood on the shores of the Red Sea, they weren't there by accident. They were there by divine appointment. That's exactly where God had led them. Using pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, he had led them to that precise location. In addition, all of the previous promises he had articulated to them through Moses made recaptivity and death impossible. And those two realities remind us why it's so very important to seek God's leading carefully and follow it diligently. When God leads us somewhere, it's always, always for our ultimate gain, even if it's a hard place. Now, on the other hand, if you're somewhere because you chose to be there, I can't give you those guarantees. But Israel hadn't learned these things yet, so they quickly began to sing what I like to call the go-back-to-Egypt blues. We were better off in Egypt. They're gonna bury us here. And their mournful lyrics testified to the fact that past pains often make us pessimists even when we know God. Years of slavery had taught them to expect the worst. So despite their liberation, despite God's promises, that's what they did. They expected the worst. And even Moses struggled. After boldly announcing the impending destruction of Israel's enemies, Moses went apart and began to cry out to God in prayer. But how many of you know there are times when God doesn't want you to pray? He wants you to take his previous word at face value. There are times when prayer is little more than verbalized stubbornness and verbalized disobedience and verbalized unbelief. So God said, Moses, cut it out. I don't want to hear it. I've already told you what's going on. Now, in fairness, no one in Israel knew what was going to happen next. The book hadn't been written, the movie with Charlton Heston was centuries away. But we know that God opened the sea and closed it upon the Egyptian army. I remember hearing a story years ago of an elderly gentleman who was an avid follower of Jesus. His next door neighbor, a younger man, was an atheist. And the young atheist used to come over and talk to the older man in attempts to dissuade him from his faith, pointing out how science and human logic and human reason disproved the things that the old man held dear. And one day the young man visited and began to talk about the fact that there was no great miracle at the Red Sea. He said to the elderly man, the place where the people of Israel crossed was the Reed Sea... It's a swampy area where the water's only about six inches deep. So no big miracle. But as he was expounding upon that, the old man just began to beam from ear to ear. And the atheist neighbor said, what do you find so humorous? He said, well, I was just thinking to myself of how powerful my God is, that he could drown horses and an entire army in just six inches of water. God did the impossible. And in response, we read that the people of Israel, as we like to say on the north side, got their praise on. They began to dance like backslidden Southern Baptists. They sang bold, confident, God honoring lyrics. They declared that the people of Canaan would hear of their deliverance and be terrified. And they were right. Forty-plus years later, when the spies finally arrived at Rahab's home, she said, where have you been? We heard about what happened in the wilderness. Our people are terrified, but we were expecting you a long time ago. Now, as the people sang this great song, the Lord has hurled the horse and the rider into the sea. He is my God, my Father's God. I will praise him it appeared that their persistent pessimism had been cured but how many of you know appearances can be deceiving because despite their god-honoring words their confidence wasn't in god their confidence was in their circumstances that's why i emphasized two phrases from the text when israel what saw then israel sang. Israel sang a song of recognition, not anticipation. Big difference. They sang after the miraculous deliverance, not before. It was the right song, great lyrics, but they sung it on the wrong side. If they had sung the same lyrics about what God can do before the miracle occurred, it would have ignited their faith and filled their souls with expectancy and hope. But the fact that they could only sing it after the miracle testified that despite how well it sounded, they were still enslaved to doubt. And what happened next affirmed that fact. Because just three days later, Three days later, they came to a place called Mara, a place where the water was contaminated. They couldn't drink it. And there, despite getting their praise on and singing God's praises and dancing just days earlier, they immediately resorted to singing the out-of-Egypt blues. Because they hadn't conquered doubt at the Red Sea, they had merely disguised their doubt with the thin veneer of praise. They shouted on Sunday, but by Wednesday evening prayer meeting, they were back to grumbling and doubting God. Now from that day forward, that generation of Israelis was beyond learning anything from God. God gave them four great tests before they reached the borders of Canaan, and they failed every one of them. Always resorted to singing the blues. And the fact that they did demonstrates that if we don't move forward in faith, we will move backwards. You can't maintain status quo. And our singing affects our movement. If we refuse to sing on the side of testing, we'll end up murmuring over every test. Now, given Israel's stubborn habit of singing on the wrong side of tests, it should come as no surprise that when they reached the border of Canaan and it was time to step into the land and conquer the inhabitants and claim what God had already given them, they balked in unbelief. Earlier, as they were singing the blues, they requested to die in the wilderness. Be careful what you ask of God, because God granted their request. And as you know, that entire generation, save for a faithful few, would spend 40 years wandering in circles until they had passed, and a new generation would enter the land of promise. That's why somebody said something years ago that really nailed this whole narrative. He said it only took God 40 hours to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took God more than 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. It only takes God a moment to get the world out of you, but it'll generally take quite a long time or to get you out of the world, excuse me, but it takes much longer to get the world out of you. And now for my promise lengthened connection. In vivid contrast to Moses' generation in the wilderness stands Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. Jesus sang the right song, but he also sang it on the right side. You say, Pastor Rock, where do you get that? Well, Matthew tells us that on the night of his betrayal, as Jesus ate what we know as the Eucharist with his disciples, on the night of his betrayal, even though he was fully aware of what was ahead, something far more imposing than the Red Sea, Jesus gave thanks And we know that as a good and devout Jew, during the dinner hour, he and the disciples would have sung the words of Psalm 113 and 114, because that was the custom. And interestingly enough, Psalm 114 says, When Israel went forth from Egypt, the sea looked and fled. Now think of this, as he's facing his crucifixion, Jesus is singing. That alone is significant. But what's he singing? He's singing about how God opened the Red Sea to a previous generation. And then there's a little often undervalued verse that says, After dinner, they sang a hymn and went out. Don't blow past that. Nothing in scripture is filler. God didn't get paid by the word. If he put the word in there, it's significant. There's a reason for it. It's important. And we know what every devout Jew would have been singing as they went out from the Passover meal. They would have been singing Psalms 115, 116, 117, and 118. They were called the Psalms of Ascent. And listen to some of the things Jesus would have been singing. Not quoting, singing. The cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow, but you have rescued my soul from death. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Psalm 117, Jesus was singing, Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud him, all peoples, for his loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. Psalm 118, the Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is the Lord's doing, Jesus sang. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made, the day of his betrayal. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then he would have concluded by singing, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Have you ever pictured Jesus singing? We don't usually. We picture him doing miracles and teaching. But Jesus sang. And he sang those words. And he sang those words before the resurrection. When the next thing on the agenda was a beating that killed most men and then crucifixion and taking the weight of the sins of the world upon himself and experiencing a momentary spiritual separation from the Father on our behalf and then going into the place of the dead to declare his victory. Before all of that, Jesus was praising So Jesus did what? He sang the right song. Well, where did Jesus sing it? He sang it on the right side. His was not a song of after-the-fact recognition. His was a song of before-the-event anticipation. Anybody can sing after a miracle. It takes no faith whatsoever. All it takes is a little bit of memory. But it takes faith to sing before the miracle. So unlike his ancestors, Jesus passed his test. And as he sang those words, I'm sure they were igniting his faith for what was coming next. Contrary to what we are tempted to assume, seemingly hopeless situations can never keep us from God's best. And also, contrary to what we tend to assume, game-changing miracles won't automatically ensure God's best. You can doubt in the aftermath of a miracle. You find it all through scripture. God's best is experienced by those who trust his heart enough to sing the right song, and sing it on the right side. And Jesus shows us those who rely upon him can do exactly that. Join your hearts with mine in prayer. Father, we find it very easy to doubt. We find it easy to sing the blues. We find it easy to grumble. We find it easy to doubt your goodness. We find find it easy to doubt ourselves. And so we tend to sing the blues rather than sing your praises. But help us to take what Israel did wrong and what Jesus did right and choose to follow the example of Jesus. Because few things are more powerful, Lord, then your praises upon the lips of somebody who's standing in front of a Red Sea. Help us to learn how to sing the right song on the right side, like Jesus did on the night of his betrayal. You want that for us, you stand ready to do it. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.